words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Stop. Stop. Don't do it. The future, existence, everything that is or will be holds its breath. Hangs in the balance. Stop. Don't do it. Please don't do it. There is anguish in the pleading voice. Slowly, deliberately, with a thin, determined smile, the woman reaches up and with one movement takes the fruit, plucks the fruit, the forbidden fruit, And in an instant, everything falls apart. In one terrible moment, everything is spoiled. Let's face it, the Bible is obsessed with sin. Preoccupied with sin. Its reality, its impact, its ugliness. In fact, if you believe the Bible... You'd think we had a real problem with sin. Like, this was the problem, our problem. Your problem, my problem. Sin. Sin? What's all the fuss? Sin? Come on, what's the problem? Well, don't just read the Bible. Read the history books. It would seem from the tales they tell... That all is not well. There would seem to be an issue out there with what we might call sin or you could call evil or wickedness or depravity. You could call it corruption or violence or injustice. Call it what you like. But the history books, from start to finish, From Genghis Khan to Stalin, from Caligula to Pol Pot, the history books are one long catalogue of, well, sin, I suppose. It's out there in the world like a pervasive influence, making a mess of things, making a mess of whole societies, making a misery of people's lives. Underestimate it at your peril, dismiss it to your cost. In fact, and let's deal in facts. Why don't we? Let's deal in facts. It would seem that if you want to get real about life, you have to admit that sin is out there. Sin is in here. And maybe the Bible is right to address this issue as the root cause of our crisis, our predicament, our pain, the fundamental sickness. The debilitating malaise of humanity. Sin is the human condition. The plague that spoils and disfigures and robs people of their happiness. The Old Testament describes it in three very powerful images. And the first of these is to see sin as rebellion. We we maybe tend to think of sin as the breaking of some abstract rule or regulation, an offence against some arbitrary drawn-up code of ethics, but the Bible isn't concerned with rules so much as relationships. 
and with the one relationship that really matters, the one that shapes and determines the nature of our existence, our relationship with God. And this was Adam's sin in the Genesis drama. Not that he crossed a moral line, transgressed some ethical boundary. It was that he acted against the will of God. Deliberately and freely and wantonly rebelled against his Lord and his God and established his own wants, his own will, above the wishes of God. And when we do that... We put a profound question mark over everything. We threaten everything with disorder and chaos and anarchy. For the order and the shape of things and the completeness of everything is built on God being God. His will for us and for creation being upheld and honoured. And when men and women choose to break with that, disaster. So, sin is no philosophical conundrum. It's profoundly personal. It's direct and deliberate rebellion. The second picture that the Old Testament uses to enable us to to understand the dangerous dynamic of sin is that of turning away from the right road and choosing freely to take the wrong road with all the grim consequences of that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And that way lies trouble and chaos and misery. Not because God makes trouble or generates chaos to punish us, to get his own back on us. Trouble and chaos are just what lie down there on that road. Lie in wait. When we head off to do our own thing, turn our back on his thing, And we take the broad road that leads to destruction instead of the narrow road of truth and integrity. And we all understand how that works. We've all stood at the crossroads and we we know that when push came to shove, sometimes we've chosen. We've chosen the tempting way, the easy way, the path of moral weakness and limp surrender. It's a powerful image turning off the right road to take the wrong one. Powerful because we can all identify with its unsettling realism. Yeah, that's me. I've been there. I've done that. And in the Old Testament, we find a third way of thinking about sin that gives the lie to our aspirations and reveals the threadbare nature of our self-righteous protestations about how good we are. How good we think we are. Describes it as being like an arrow that flies towards a target but misses it by miles. Or simply falls short of the target altogether. So that our best efforts at goodness fall lamentably short of what's required. Skew way off, way wide of the target. And force us to acknowledge that in terms of holiness of life and compassion and service, in terms of our obligations as children of God, and even as human beings, simply. If we think we can be good and upright enough and perfect enough so that somehow we'll achieve so high a standard of moral probity that we will be as good as we should be, 
It's not going to happen. Forget it. The acid tongue, the critical spirit, the walking by on the other side, the call for help we turned a deaf ear to, the mean-spirited thought, there we go again, falling short. Falling short. We're not, we're not there by a street. And we need to believe that because it's the truth. When we offer our, our blustered protestations that, come on now, we've never robbed a bank or murdered anybody. The truth is, that's not enough to reach the target. Nowhere near enough. The Bible couldn't make it plainer. Sin is our problem. We are sinners by inclination and in practice. We need to get used to that. The verdict is inescapable. And given the nature of God and his holiness and requirement... That means we have a problem. And sin is our problem. The Bible is right. This is the big one. It's not academic. It's not abstract. It's as real as what you will read in your paper tomorrow morning. With its ghastly catalogue of human wickedness. Page after page. Littered with the wreckage of people's lives. Reminding us that yes we are rebels. And yes we are heading up the cul-de-sac of a willful disobedience. And yes, we do fall way far short of the required qualifications. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And just in case we want to delude ourselves that none of this uncomfortable analysis is to do with us, we find that in the New Testament, sin is even more rigorously described. With Jesus highlighting not just the external expressions of sin, the corrupt actions, the callous disregard of the needy, but reminding us of the internal dimensions, the secret private world of motivation and thought, the fact that neglecting our neighbour and our responsibility to him or her is as culpable as direct action against them, that what we think reveals the hypocrisy and the lust no less than what we do. The internal dialogue is as much under the scrutiny of a holy God and his piercing truth as any outward manifestations. The bottom line and the top line and all the lines in between say the same thing. Sin is writ large on the human heart. Writ large on our heart. A man comes home to his house after a hard day at work and there, splashed on the walls of his front room across the paintwork are all the angry thoughts, all the jealousies, all the bitternesses, all the foul contemplations that had crossed his mind that day. All the ugly thoughts. And he sees them and he's horrified and he gets a scrubbing brush and he tries to scrub them off and he gets rid of most of it. There's still marks there, but mostly it's gone, so that's okay. But the next day, the same thing. Did I really think that? Am I that person? There it was, all around the walls. And he doesn't want to look and so he draws the curtains and he sits in darkness and he won't let anyone into that room. Because if they saw it, they would know who he was and they wouldn't like him very much. 
They knew the jangling internal cacophony of his life and the mess he is in and the mess he is. And so his life begins with the denial and the avoidance and no, you can't come in. The hiding, the pretense, the barriers, the guilt, the lie he starts to live. In spite of what we try to do to minimize the reality, the reality persists. We can make jokes about it and be blasé and we can build it up as if it were great to devote whole streets and cities to sleaze and corruption. And we can paint it over with propaganda and reclothe it as entertainment or it's just a bit of fun or it's only human nature or come on, nobody's perfect. But actually, in the cold light of day, you would have to be pretty stubborn and pretty deliberately blind to reality not to acknowledge that there is a problem. Social, international, psychological, relational, personal, spiritual. And maybe the Old Testament and the New Testament and the church are quite clued up, quite clued up as to what makes people tick and what stops us ticking. And maybe what we need is an analysis of our human condition that takes seriously the root issues, the basic questions, the profoundest reality of our human experience. Let's be grown up about this. Let's not pretend that everything is great. You need to admit to the symptoms if you're going to get help. You need to acknowledge that there's a problem before you admit the need for an answer. And the great cosmic drama that the Bible brings to us, the story of salvation as it unfolds through the people of Israel and the life and death and rising of Christ, the thrust and purpose of the Christian gospel is to keep it real, to keep it real, to deal with the real questions that dog our spirit. To find out if God does have a love that's big enough to deal with human sin. Whether the heart of God is wide enough and welcoming enough to embrace sinners, people like us. Someone to help us where we are. Not where we might imagine we are, but what we really need. Someone to rescue us from the pit. We're going to sing a hymn at the end of our service that takes us right into the word of hope, announces the good news of the gospel, and we should listen to those words, and when we sing them, make them our own. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Thanks be to God that there is a gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to turn to him 721 for our prayers for others.